0: Hello and welcome to Water Q&A, Global Water Forum's monthly dive into the challenges of water governance in the 21st century. I'm your host Jesper Svensson. Bo Rothstein is one of the most distinguished political scientists in the world on the issue of quality of government. I sat down with him in Gothenburg, Sweden to discuss the nature of corruption and what we can do to address it. Good afternoon, Professor Borostein. We are really pleased to have you on board on this program. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, I, I really want to start with um, asking you uh, why corruption. Why did you? How did you get involved in working on this topic in the first place? And why did you decide to leave Oxford University in two thousand seventeen?
1: The questions are somewhat related, actually. Uh, I came into this area of research Uh, basically I don't think of myself as a corruption researcher we are doing research on what is the opposite of corruption namely what we call quality of government Um, and uh, there were several reasons one was that a number of years before I started this this was in the mid-1990s I was involved in a project led by an American colleague, uh, Robert Putnam, about social capital and social trust, that he had written a book that got a lot of attention for him. And um, he had a comparative project that he started, and I was supposed to write about Sweden, and I, I came very much to the same conclusion as he that uh, social capital, social trust is a new and very important addition to the tools in social science, the conceptual tools that it had all the positive valued outcomes, uh, better democracy, better economy, better everything almost, that uh, he had portrayed. But I came to a very, based on empirical findings, I came to a very different conclusion about how this capital is generated. Um, His idea was uh, very much and still is that it was generated by people being active in voluntary association and we couldn't find any empirical support for this. Still, we have not been able to find. Uh, Instead, we found that uh, especially social trust, uh, when people... uh, decide if they think uh, that other people in general can be trusted. Uh, One of their main clues to find this out is how they perceive the, the public institutions in their society. If they are dishonest, incompetent, corrupt, so they will make inference saying, well, if people who run the public institutions are not to be trusted, why should people in general in this society be trusted? And then, it, of course, came the, the obvious question uh, why do different countries have so different levels of quality in the public institution? Another reason was that uh, I came in contact with Eleanor Rostrom when I was a visiting scholar at the Russell Sage Foundation in New York in, in the late 1998-99. Nine, And there was a project about trust and she came several times and uh, we started to talk about this. And uh, I came to understand uh, the problem of corruption and quality of government very much along her lines, uh, that this was a collective action problem. and uh, she inspired me very much to, to go into this direction. So uh, I, lo- I owe a lot here to, to, to Lynn Ostrom for, for g- getting into this area. The other question why I uh, left, decided to leave my position in Oxford was uh, that uh, I was at a school that was created by a huge donation by a person named Leonard Blavatnik. It was the Blavatnik School of Government. I had the Blavatnik share of government and public policy. And uh, the motto of the school, which was a public policy school, was a world better government. And I really liked to be at the school. I loved the students. I had a good time there. Uh, And I had no problem with this donation, which was an enormously huge donation. It was 70 billion British pounds, which is almost unheard money in the social sciences. Uh, But uh, then it uh, was revealed that they had started to donate money to Donald Trump. And uh, I happen to believe that everything that Donald Trump stands for is anathema to. A world better governed uh, and uh, I thought this was very problematic and I uh, tried to get the leadership of the school to take a position on this quite troubling thing but they refused to and so I um, it was very much related to my specific teaching and research if, if you teach about the importance of honesty trust integrity anti-corruption in the public sector, I understood it would be helpless to stand in front of those very smart and well-educated students uh, having the name Blavatnik stamped on my forehead. Had I been doing research in whatever population health or uh, standard economics, I may not have taken this position, but for me it became... uh,
0: indefensible situation basically for for me when i uh, when i read the news it's very difficult and also i guess for the public to distinguish many times between on one hand truth but also fiction so what is corruption i mean if if i take two examples so you're a professor and i'm a student if i pay you money and you give me a higher grade that's called a bribe okay corruption but if I'm a billionaire and and I live in London and I ask City of London Corporation to funnel and transfer a lot of my wealth into paradise islands in order for me to avoid paying tax it's actually legal so what what is what is corruption and and what is the evolution of corruption and how how do we measure it It's, of course, a
1: very good question. I spent an enormous amount of time on these conceptual and theoretical questions, yes. uh, um, The standard definition of corruption is something like uh, abuse of public power for private gain. And I was never fond of this definition because abuse is not defined in the definition. And that means that the thing becomes very relativistic what is sort of as abuse in one situation or in another in one country may not be abuse in another so it doesn't tell you much it just says uh, corruption is a bad thing it doesn't specify uh, uh, what type of behavior or what type of behavioral norm that is transgressed when you can speak about corruption so Together with colleagues, I, I tried to uh, circumvent or make a uh, go around the problem in, in military terms by trying to define what is the opposite of corruption. And uh, so we thought that corruption in some way involves. Uh, uh, the public sector—it's the bending of rules. I mean, it can be a private agent who bribes, a person in the public sector, or a person from the public sector who to give special favors to. So, but and so we thought, what is the norm that people who have a position uh, in the civil service or public administration or as a professional working for the public sector should live up to? And we settled for this norm of impartiality, um, which we derive from political philosophy, philosophers like John Rawls, for example, and Brian Barry. Uh, And impartiality is good, we think, because, of course, it rules out bribes, but it also rules out things like nepotism or favoritism or... uh, Uh, clientelism, or things like that. So, uh, and we also think that, I mean, the opposite to justice cannot be complete equality because we tolerate actually many inequalities in society. Talented people get more, smart people get more. The opposite to justice is actually favoritism, what people react against, and this seems very universal, over time and place is those who are set to manage our public goods, transform them into their private goods.
0: I know that you have have written a few articles about water. So how does quality of government shape access to safe drinking water?
1: Water was actually one of the reasons, another reason why I started this operation, the Quality of Government Institute. I had a PhD student uh, who wrote about water regulation in Africa, something I didn't know much about. And he put me in contact with people from the uh, engineering schools, uh, hydrogeologists, and so who, who are actually physically studying <laughs> Uh, water and, and they told us the following, that at that time, this is more than 15 years ago, but I think the situation is even worse now, that uh, about fourteen to 16,000 people die every day due to lack of safe water and sanitation. Two-thirds are children. And then they said to me, um, many people think this is because of lack of natural water. And they said, no this explains only a little fraction of the problem. And then they said we are engineers so we have been quite successful in persuading aid and development agencies in Sweden and around the world to to put money into uh, uh, infrastructure for like pumps and sewages, water cleaning stations and so on. But they said in many cases this doesn't help because for two reasons. The procurement system in many of these developing countries is so utterly corrupt that the installations that are put in place simply fall apart. They don't hold quality, And or people refuse to pay for the water because they are convinced that the money goes down in the wrong pocket. So the few honest water managers who try to keep these installations going. They, they don't have enough funds. Uh, so they said to us, this is actually, we have to collaborate. This is a, this is a political science, public administration program. And that information became utterly important for me. You know, most political scientists, they have politics as the thing they want to explain. Who wins elections, why parties are formed. Coalitions and why people vote as they do, and so. On. But I decided, no, I will from now on have human well-being as my dependent variable. So here, the quality of government operation and my own research, I would say, differ from the majority of political scientists. I mean, economists have economic growth, but economics can only be a means. What we actually care about is human well-being. If the babies survive, if people live long and reasonably healthy life, if they are reasonably satisfied with their life, if they have education, if they have housing, if they have food, uh, and you can have an enormous growth in the economy, but it can be utterly skewed. So some people actually don't benefit from this growth. So I, That is why I think that this human well-being, based very much on on another philosopher, uh, Amartya Sen, also a prize winner in economics, his idea of of this capability approach, that we should sort of have a society that gives people capabilities to realize their life projects. without safe water or food or shelter. or So this will, of course, not be possible for many
0: people. I know, I know in one of your books you mentioned, uh, I think it's the name of your chapter, The Tale of Two Countries, Democratic Jamaica versus High Quality of Government Singapore. What is that? And I should also tell the listeners that the government. Singapore is, is uh, hailed as a champion of water management, particularly wastewater management. But what, what do you mean with that, the tale of two countries?
1: Well, one problem we have is that many people, including myself of course, had hoped that democracy would serve as a cure against corruption. And that democracy would bring human well-being. Unfortunately, the data don't cave in. Um, In many cases, uh, newly elected governments turn out in weak states, developing states turn out to promote a lot of corruption, to get reelected or get money from the public coffers and so on. And uh, I choose to make a comparison between Jamaica and Singapore because both countries are small island countries. Both were British colonies. Both got free from British colonial rule in the early 1960s. And at that time, they were equally dirt poor. Now, if any social scientist would have been asked to make a prediction, he or she is likely to have said that Jamaica has a really bright future. Lots of arable land, lots of natural resources, everyone speaks English, no ethnic Strives uh, every actually quite well functioning civil service that they had inherited from from Britain, uh, close to the world's biggest market, and they could since Cuba went out of the tourist business at that time, they could have opened a gigantic tourist industry. Singapore, they would have said, ah, this will this will go astray far from all the markets. Lots of ethnic diversity, few speak English, no arable land, no natural resources. If we go forward, what is it now? Some 60 years. I think that Singapore has 13 times the wealth than Jamaica. Actually, Singapore now beats the Nordic countries when it comes to things like yeah, waste management and infant mortality and many of those uh, 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 in every standard measure we can come up with on human well-being Singapore clearly outperforms Jamaica through, through. but there is one little problem here, during this whole period Jamaica has been a functioning democracy, not Singapore and that is something to think about.
0: It's a huge divergence.
1: Enormous, yeah. But they yes. started from yeah. basically the same point. If you go back to 62, 63, uh, they started from the very same point. And the reason is, of course, that Singapore is a very unique case with a very special authoritarian ruler. Most authoritarian ruler promotes uh, uh, corruption and enrich themselves enormously and yeah kill people their political power. I, I'm not defending the authoritarian rule in Singapore but it's very special they didn't they have been meticulous in anti unsuccessful and, and in anti-corruption. they have uh, one of the best civil services in the world highly educated, utterly professional. Uh, So this shows that if it's human well-being that you're after, I'm absolutely not arguing against democracy, but democracy without increasing the quality of government will not deliver you more.
0: But how about in Singapore? So these civil servants, are they accountable only to the... The government or other also accountable to to the public like like bottom-up pressure or I think they are basically accountable upwards
1: not so much downwards but of course there can be political protests also I mean it's uh, Singapore is a non-democratic authoritarian society but it's not very brutal when it comes to uh, political protests for example for what I know but I'm not a specialist in in Singaporean politics, so you should ask someone else. I'm just doing this. I'm just curious. Comparison to 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 show the case that uh, that uh, if it's something that really has a huge effect on human well-being, it's it's uh, it's if you can uh, get serious control over corruption. I mean, no country can do away with corruption. The country out without corruption is as likely as a country without crime. It it will never happen, but there are
0: serious, very serious differences both when it comes to crime and corruption in the world between countries. Another case is uh, China. I know you have have an article in the Journal of uh, Governance. It's called The Paradox of China. So what explains why authoritarian China provides more superior urban drinking water than, for example, democratic India. What do you mean with the, the paradox of China? The paradox of
1: China is precisely what you say, that this com- comes from an article published by Amartya Sen a number of years ago, Quality of Life, where he compared India and China. And Sen, as you know, is of Indian descent and has always hailed Indian democracy as preventing famine and so But He writes this article, quite sad, saying it is really a problem that authoritarian communist China outperforms liberal democracy, liberal democratic India on basically every standard measure of human well-being. And uh, China has also been a very big problem in Old theories of development. Uh, if you take this institutional theory by famous economists, Darren Asamuglo and John Robinson uh, and, and Robinson and, and many others, that they cannot explain China. Uh, they say China will explode. Yeah. So far, not. <laughs> so I'm I'm when I think about myself, I think I'm I'm basically a public administration scholar masquerading as a political scientist. So I, I think of politics very much from a public administration perspective. And what they many haven't seen is that China has a very special type of public administration. It is at the same time very political, very. Loyal to the Communist Party, the Communist Party really, really rules. But it's also very professional, and in some way they managed to combine it in a in an interesting way. It's a, it's a kind of special organisational mode, not specific for China. I've seen it when I've studied uh, American political public administration, Swedish political administration. But it's it's basically not ruled by laws but rule by mandates. So uh, uh, you recruit people who are very committed and loyal to the policy that is going to be performed. But you don't give them much of rules or regulations. Instead, you train them in this ideological idea that is the basis for what you want to do in this policy area helping small firms grow or regulating water or population politics. Um, And it's actually a quite efficient type of of, uh, organizational process because the idea is that um, the, the people who are actually on the field, they should understand and be committed to the policy goals that the leadership have developed. So, without having to rely on strict rules and regulations, they will do as the leaders would have done, had they had that information on the ground that they have. Uh, This is a quite efficient operation. It has a big drawback, of course. In a democracy, it's thought that that should be really big policy shifts now and then in different areas. And then the organization gets useless because the whole cadre is trained to do one thing and it's very difficult to get them to do something else. But but in, uh, China doesn't have this problem. They don't change government. Again, I'm absolutely not defending anything of the authoritarian rule there, but one has to realize and come up with some explanation why they are quite successful.
0: It's also very interesting, I mean... Xi Jinping the current president he actually came into power because the communist party knew that we need to clean up the system and this is the guy who can actually you know hunt flies and hunt tigers but, w- w- but what what ex- uh, escapes attention though from most people don't know about this that China is actually implementing a, a river chief system so they there it basically means trying to align administrative boundaries with river basin boundaries. Mm -hmm. So they are mobilizing, I think, 1.2 million high-ranking state officials from the provincial Mm -hmm. level down to the county level to combat um, water pollution. So in in a Western context, for example, what what would that mean? That would mean that the mayor of Gothenburg would be responsible for Göta River, Mm And you know, in context of UK, that would mean that Mayor of London, Sadiq Khan, he will be responsible for Thames River. So exactly. No, I,
1: I can very well imagine this. This is how a Carter administration works. Yeah, know? and it can, in some, in these areas, be utterly
0: efficient, for sure. Yeah. But I know, in your article, you, um, I, I wonder what will happen with this if China starts moving towards democracy, like two-party system or multi-party democracy? What will happen with this administrative system, you think?
1: In some areas, it will be
0: useless <laughs> because, as I said,
1: in a democracy, the idea is that you should change policy in some areas. Now, if you train a huge cadre to work with one type of policy design, so to say, and there is a democratic Election and in comes a party who want to do something else. They are of course useless. <laughs> we we actually seen that in Sweden. I mean, when we had policy shifts in some area like uh, aid, for example, where uh, the the implementing agency was very much in alliance with the social democratic idea of how this should be done, and when they uh, center conservative government came in, I think they changed. Director General four times or something, because uh, so it's what I'm saying. This is many many who study China, China specialists specifically in political science, they have one explanation for everything in China that is Confucianism, and I say well, uh, Marxist Leninism that ruled China was not a Chinese invention. Cutthroat capitalism that they are doing now is not a Chinese invention. I've seen this organizational model uh, and read about it in other areas. It's quite rare, but where it's used, it's it's utterly uh, efficient for the time being. And uh, so this is my explanation. It's basically uh, that they have a very special type of non-verbarian, meaning non strictly rule-governed, legal-oriented public administration. It's very much driven by commitment, professionalism and loyalty to the Communist Party.
0: So how should we we combat corruption? Yes...
1: uh... (sighs) The main idea for combating corruption that has been dominating the last almost 20 years has been an economic theory known as the principal agent theory. And it's taken from economics, from how how you think about firms, where there is a, a conflict of interest between the owners, the principal, and the agents, the managers, and the workers, the owner wants more profit, and the, the managers want higher wages and and, and and better working conditions. So there there, there, you have uh, the, the basis for the principal agent problem. And maybe it works when you study private firms. When you move this theory to the public sector, it goes completely astray. Uh, because the theory says in order to fix corruption – you have the principle has to change the incentive structure for the agents. So more control, more punishment, but also more rewards for good behavior. So basically, when you have a system where the incentives are such that uh, when fear of being caught for bad behavior is higher than the greed you can get from corruption, things would go well. Now... I have three points of criticism against this theory that has very much dominated the World Bank thinking and most. First, if corruption was an incentive problem, we would have solved it long ago. There is absolutely no lack of knowledge how to change incentives. We know how to do this. It would have been a piece of cake. Obviously, it's not all those anti-corruption efforts that have been launched during the last 25 years, it's actually very difficult to see any real effect on the ground. Secondly, uh, what is the likelihood that you, in a systemically corrupt setting, would see an honest principle come to power? Why should such a country or society at all produce uh, it can happen like in Singapore but it's utterly rare what we should expect is Robert Mugabe Jacob Zuma, Vladimir Putin <laughs> uh, 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 it won't happen basically, and the third thing is which is a more theoretical this is an economic theory based on that all the agents are self-interested, utility maximizers fine however, the actor that is going to change everything, the principle, is completely different. He is public good-oriented, honest, uh, well-behaved, good-natured, will never enrich himself or his family. Now, I think it's actually intellectually unhealthy to work with a theory that is based on... uh, Actor that is not supposed to exist according to the basic axioms of the theory. So, what should you do? We think of corruption not in this principal agent term, my colleagues. We think of it very much along Eleanor Ostrom's line as a collective action problem. And this is. Uh, very different. Here the agents are not utility maximizers. They are also not Mother Teresa types. <laughs> we think that they are, most agents are, what they do is based on reciprocity. So, to put it simple, most agents are willing to do the right thing, but only under the perception that they think that most other agents are also willing to do the right thing. So you're willing to sort your garbage. But not if you think that you belong to a very small minority who do. Or you may be willing, if you work in a corrupt sector, to stop taking bribes. But only if most of your colleagues are also willing to stop taking bribes. And so on and so forth. Probably not only meaningless pretty dangerous to be the only honest policeman in a Mexican police force so this if if you think of the problem in this way uh, what is needed is uh, some kind of shock to the system that is of very different from tingling with or tinkering with with incentives. It means that the signals for change that come must be so strong that not only do you think that you should change, but you would think that most other in in your situation would also change. This can be different things, uh, but it must be pretty... So what we are talking about is is a changed, uh, and this is the basic term I use now, the changed social contract. So... Take a standard example. In a highly corrupt country, even people who think that there should be more public responsibility for education, school, health care, vaccination, roads, and so, on, will not be likely to pay taxes for this because they will be convinced that the money will go in the wrong pockets. And also they will look around and say, well, I don't get anything, you know. I don't get good or any school for my kids. I have to buy that privately. I don't get the electricity, only works half the day. Uh, I don't get good protection from the police. Uh, 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 my health care I have to buy privately. So they perceive that they are not in a social contract situation with the public sector. And if you don't have a contract, you don't want to pay it's a simple thing. And this is, of course, a difficult situation because if the public sector don't have any money, it cannot deliver, right? So you can it's be a locked in a, in a vicious cycle here. And to break this vicious cycle, you have to use quite strong medicine. Something of a big bang change. or something. So, uh, uh Uh, we know a number of things that work, gender equality works, Uh, universal free, reasonably high quality education works meritocracy in the recruitment to the public sector works if you have a reasonably efficient and honest tax administration that works and also if you have a system for auditing of the public sector that is working well, and, and that is um, communicate the, the reports broadly that seems to have an independent effect. Also. There can be more things, it's, uh, but it's basically things that for the ordinary citizen implies a change of, of, of what is called the social contract.
0: How, how does uh, gender equality uh, address corruption? Can you tell us a little bit about that?
1: Yeah, uh, it's uh, one of the most interesting findings f- in this research, that the more women you have in the public sector, the lower is the corruption. And uh, many people get uh, surprised by this result. <laughs> one of the surprises <laughs> is that many of my feminist friends uh, get a little nervous with this result because they, they smell essentialism and they are not very fond of it. Yeah. Uh, there can be many reasons for this uh, my colleagues here are trying to figure out what maybe women are more risk averse and corruption is a little risky or maybe they are more dependent on a well-functioning public sector uh, so uh, my my take of this is very very simple uh, I have no reason to go into this discussion if it's nature or nurture here. But I say, take a look at crime and open any prison system in the world and look who is there for serious crime. And you will see it's 94 to 96 percent. men. It's actually an enormous differences in serious criminal behavior between men and women. Uh, I mean there you can just look around you see very few female uh, football hooligans or, <laughs> or or gang members actually the, the criminologists tell me that when women are are convicted for serious crimes like bank robbery and so on they are usually the assistants they are not holding the guns <laughs> basically. now i say most of most of uh, Corruption is illegal. Why shouldn't we see the same here? Mm. It's uh, very obvious to me. Uh, but hey, I'm just a simple political scientist. It's not for me to explain why you have this gigantic difference in, in uh, antisocial, if you say so, behavior uh, between men and women. But it's there, and you have to be blind not to see it. Uh, there is surprisingly little research and discussion in criminology or sociology about this uh, enormous difference in behavior between men and women. Wow.
0: Another question I want to ask you is, um, I mean, we, spoke, we talked a bit, little bit about this before, that it, it's difficult for the public to distinguish between truth and fiction. There's a lot of disinformation campaigns going on. Some people say there's an assault on science, fake news etc how can we protect science because if we if we can't trust science we can't tackle some of these huge problems
1: well science could start by cleaning up much of this thinking actually comes from within academia you have a number of uh, approaches in academia that uh, have become very strong and that basically denies the existence of truth or that science can reach truth in large parts of the humanities and parts of the social sciences are inspired by theories like Michel Foucault and Derrida, especially Foucault, who basically argue that there is no such thing as science. It's just another way to wield power. Uh, and uh, so, and then you have the relativists, of course, and then you have the postmodernists. <laughs> so uh, much of this actually comes from within science. When it comes to impartiality, which we think is important, um, for example, the large Approach in the social sciences, especially in economics, but also in political science, known as the public choice approach, basically deny uh, that there can be such a thing as impartial behavior. Or everyone in the public sector acts as everyone in the market; they are just there to enrich or, or support themselves. So, uh, one starting point could be to to start with a. I think. How should I say? What you say is correct—that there is an attack from the outside on the science. Absolutely so, but there is also uh, an attack from inside. So this is, uh, for me, clearly a two-front war.
0: How do how do we start fixing it? Then? It's not for me. I'm soon to retire. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay,
1: okay. No, but well, it's 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 really a very hard. Uh, uh, um, a hard battle to to, uh, to uh, come up with things that work here um, I mean I'm not so naive that I think data can just reveal uh, the truth uh, all scientific approaches are based on some preconception of what you are interested in what you want to find and so but I've become allergic to lots of research, both in humanities and social science, where people basically uh, fall in love with one theory and then they only go to look for the evidence that they know beforehand will support this theory. That's a huge problem in, in much of social science, not to speak of the humanities. So uh, one thing would be to clean up our own (laughs) backyard here first before we can can speak to the general public about these things. Um,
0: Okay, thank you very much, uh, Professor Boronstein. It was a true privilege to have you on this program, and thank you all for listening. Thank you. Water q is a joint production for Global Water Forum by the Australian National University and University of Oxford. To find out more, go to www.globalwaterforum.org. Follow us on Twitter and find us on Facebook. Just type in Global Water Forum into the search bar.